Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today in a rather deserted Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Tim Robethon. Tim is the Design Director and Managing Director of Dash CAE, an advanced vehicle engineering company in Oxfordshire. Uh, Tim, welcome. Great to have you on the programme with us today. Well, thank you so much for inviting us. Um, it's my pleasure, uh, Tim. And um, first and foremost, what I would like to say is this podcast, as you know, is all about the topic of leadership and effective leadership at that. Um, but how has it been attempting to lead a business through the storm of the last couple of weeks with the whole COVID-19 outbreak? Because I can imagine that that's been incredibly disruptive. Well, uh, yes, you're not joking. It's um, <clears throat> No one could ever have predicted um, the, state, uh, the state that we all find ourselves in. And I have to say, it's it's been um, tricky to try and make the right decisions for uh, for the business and also for all the staff. Um, I think we we've come up with the right idea and we've kept ourselves uh, very busy <clears throat> uh, turning our machinery to making visors for heroes. Mm. Uh, that's given us a sense of focus. And uh, uh, obviously, whilst all our customers are shutting down. And um, uh, the future is not that that, that clear. Uh, we've given ourselves that that mission, and uh, that that's kept us all going and uh, focused. Yeah, that's fantastic to hear. Of course, that the business is um, able to remain occupied uh, during this time. Um, in the long term, Tim, what do you think the effect um, will be on the sector more broadly? Um, longer term, it's anyone's guess. Uh, the, the, there's two trains of thought. People are going to come out fighting and uh, uh, try and catch up for lost time. Um, uh, but, you know, there's the other train of thought, which is, you know, people are finding this whole um, episode uh, a time to reflect on the way that capitalism has sort of overrun our lives a little bit. Perhaps we should all be taking a little bit more time to uh, uh, consider life uh, as, as a slightly more precious asset. And I have to say, um, I'm in the second camp. Um, I think... Um, um, you know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be too adverse to um, uh, a slightly more considered uh, horizon. Certainly, and um, do you think that this is going to yield changes in the way that people go about leading businesses as well, and affect the culture that they in, um, impose on their business? I think. Uh, I think we're seeing that um, uh, society is generally a bit more considerate towards others, your neighbours, uh, and in town, uh, companies to staff and um, governments to uh, to its subjects as well. Uh, so um, I'd like to think that that theme is reflected, uh, uh, you know, on, on future business going forward. It would be fantastic to uh, to certainly see that. And there is um, this sense of national unity that's um, emerged as well. And there's a great consideration uh, from business leaders about um, matters such as communication, such as uh, being able to maintain contact with their uh, team members to make sure that they're remaining motivated and continuing to uh, work. And it really brings um, under the microscope, as it were, the importance of having a good team around you as a leader, doesn't it? Because it's not just a one-man or a one-woman job. It's very much about the collective. No, and I'm really lucky. I mean, we're a very small team here uh, at Dash CAE in Oxford. Um, and uh, I've, I've always been um, very careful on the people that I select to try and keep um, what is essentially a family business, uh, you know, in that sort of family frame of mind. Uh, and the people that I have working for me are extremely conscientious, and I'm eternally grateful for the good work that they do. 
in supporting us. So um, it's important to me uh, to make sure that they're they're protected through this whole crisis and that they have some future. <clears throat> and and even whilst this is going on, uh, I see it as my job to to try and tee up some kind of um, uh, new um, uh, line of work uh, so that when we do come out of the other side, uh, we can all get back to to to, to you know delivering the, the, the things that we do. Certainly. And um, what sort of qualities um, as a business leader do you look for in your own team members, especially when it comes to recruitment? Because there are certain things that are incredibly important for one's development, aren't there, that one has to have before, of course, um, being considered for a role? So, so um, uh, I, I think uh, diligence and uh, um, reliability are, are key assets that I look for um, in in a, in a person. I do slightly believe that um, you can teach people or train people uh, up to, you know, the, the, the um, uh, skills that they may be short of. Uh, but uh, if they don't have that conscience within their minds uh, to, to, to be conscientious in the work that they do, it's always going to be uh, pushing against the tide a bit. So we do definitely look for people of that kind. And that's very, very interesting, Tim, because um, what I would um, like to ask um, a- in response to that is, um, in terms of great leaders, do you think that it's something that certain individuals are born with or is it something that you can learn and develop throughout your career? Because um, there is a learning process in place. A lot of leaders do go into leadership roles, they make mistakes, they get things wrong and they learn from that. But there are some things that I think one has to be born with, such as a hunger and a desire, isn't there? Um, possibly. Um, I, I, I think you can also develop those uh, during your during your during your time, are you born with them? I don't think anyone's born with any God-given right to, to do any particular job, any particular way. And I'm, you know, although there are definitely formative, you know, having having been a, a dad and had my own boys, uh, most of whom are at university now, um, uh, you know, having 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 been through that, it's been quite interesting. I've found uh, seeing how people's personalities develop, and certainly there are formative years at the beginnings of their lives, which which influence the way they might or might not go. Certainly. And when you talk about um, formative years, um, in your case, Tim, um, are there any um, individuals or any experiences that you've had that have maybe influenced you um, as you develop through your career? Uh, I would say my siblings, (laughs) really. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Gosh, I'd have to think about that. Um, There's there's Mm. a great during my career, but... um, yeah, mainly in Formula One when, when I used to work in Formula One teams a lot of people to look up to in that business It's incredibly interesting that you don't mention any household names there because um, when people sometimes think of great leaders um, the temptation can be to think about celebrities sports personalities politicians people who are in the public eye but some of the greatest inspirations can be those people who go under the radar and good examples of leadership can so often go unseen as a result of that Um, if we take that into consideration for a moment Tim do you think that good leadership is as celebrated as much as it should be in this country? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, if you look at um, <clears throat> what what they do over in America, you know that they're they're they're, they're um, celebrating that kind of achievement all of the time. I think, and um, uh, yeah, we could certainly do much more to 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 um, celebrate uh, those leaders in this country. I suppose, uh, or done. It's all a bit. I'm not aware of it. That's for sure. Mm. And for the next generation of um, emerging leaders, um, what qualities uh, do you think it's important for them to embrace? Um, 
Well, I, I, I'd like to go back to the theme of, of you know, um, society uh, being more generous to uh, other people. Um, one of the things I hate in business is this um, uh, big OEM uh, screwing the uh, the uh, supplier a little bit and not, you know, hanging out payments for a long time. That whole cash flow situation becomes unmanageable, and it should, it's quite distasteful. It doesn't need to be that way. Um, and I'd like to think that future leaders uh, are, are more reasonable uh, and more respectful of other companies. It'll certainly be interesting to see how that is borne out, especially with this new sense of national unity and kindness that we seem to have, because it is a long-standing problem within business, within a number of industries. And I think uh, given the cash flow issues that a lot of businesses have at the moment, it's being brought under the microscope again. And it's important that we don't forget that in the grand scheme of things with this COVID-19 outbreak, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm, you know, I mean, we've got our own bag of problems uh, in 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 that line in our in our small company. I'm not going to mention any any companies, uh, but um, it's certainly an act that needs to be cleaned up. I would say. Mm, I can certainly see where you're coming from uh, from that point of view, Tim. Um, I'm conscious of uh, running out of time, but before we do go about uh, wrapping things up, um, do tell me what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself and for Dash CAE and what you really hope to achieve in that time, particularly through COVID-19 and out the other side. So just before COVID-19 uh, uh, hit us all, we were, we were just about to expand um, into a uh, 10,000 square metre site. We, we currently work on a um, uh, two, two, 250 square metre site at the moment. So uh, it was quite a big step for us. Um, and um, we were going to take on another 20, 30 employees to fulfil some large contracts. But of course, that's all, that's all, uh, that's all being um, put on hold whilst this COVID-19 situation occurs. So the future for me is hopefully to resurrect uh, those uh, business plans uh, and hopefully uh, employ more people and uh, continue to do what we enjoy doing, which is making some great uh, prototype innovative parts. It sounds like there are some really, really exciting plans for the uh, the future there, Tim. And let's hope that once we do get out um, to the other side of this, um, those plans can be resurrected and the business continue can continue to thrive um, as it is doing. Um, for now, however, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the programme. And it would be great, I think, in a few months' time to look at this retrospectively and see just how those hopes have developed and are being borne out. Thank you so much for your time today, Tim, and for coming on to speak with me for the benefit of the listeners. And thank you so much, too. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, Coming up next on the programme, we'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. Uh, I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew. And that's coming up just now. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place. 
and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... You know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to... See your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance. Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. Of and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any, uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, 
Um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after. Because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point though, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough, and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it. 
for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there, there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment. And uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to, tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all of that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place and they uh they'll feel comforted there'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough if they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself um it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be it doesn't matter you know how gregarious and and how um impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss was coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the 
all that mm. in the night and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky... Uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it, a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves, mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know even when watching that World Cup final again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired. Another generation of, uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, and you in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become. An inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to 
fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers... It's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about, about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we're, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's the, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh in a good way you know felt so much uh love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing red uh, wearing red so it w w what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely no they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, 
that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but... In two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.